Behind his passion, there is tireless preparation. Andres Cantor has spent a lifetime practicing and perfecting the art of play-by-play in soccer. His instincts and feel for the game create the famous flow to describe action with the perfect words, all leading up to the one word shouted loud and long that has made Andres a legend in two languages. Goal! Yeah, imitation is flattery, but I'm not even going to try. Andres is the lead match caller at Telemundo and cable network Universo after starting at Univision. He also works for NBC and on the radio network that he owns, Football de Primera. I've been a huge soccer fan since the 80s, so this was a real treat to hear a great storyteller talk about his early years, his path to stardom, his favorite calls, and swap some ideas about what makes play-by-play special. Here's the great Andres Cantor and what's behind his often-imitated, never-matched calls. Andres Cantor, you're a legend. You should be resting your voice, but instead you're talking to us, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Looking forward to this. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Who you got? You got me. My voice is uh, very strong today, so we can go at it. Perfect, perfect. I'll try to match your strength of voice. We could go a lot of places, and we will in this conversation, but I want to begin on a cold night in the capital of South Africa, in Pretoria in 2010, what is going to be a near-disastrous evening for U.S. soccer. All they need is a victory over Algeria to go through. If they don't get the victory, they are eliminated in the group stage. You're calling the game on radio, which requires an intensity that's unlike television or anything else, probably. And Landon Donovan scores in the dying minutes. And it's a goal that every single U.S. soccer fan will remember forever. And for you, it ranks right up there as well, doesn't it? This is the intensity of the entire game leading up to Donovan's goal. Most definitely, it is one of my top three goals of, of my broadcasting career. Uh, it was a long night. We got there uh, very, very early when there was still sunlight in, in, the, sta- in the city. Uh, it got very, very cold as the game progressed. And I had as my color commentators on one side, Marcelo Balboa, former U.S. soccer international. And on the other side, Bora Milutinovic, his coach in the 1994 World Cup. So this was an All-American, if you will, uh, broadcast. And obviously, we did not anticipate that this could happen, that it could go to the very last minute. I, as you clearly said, uh, I go at a different pace when I broadcast do, and do play-by-play on radio than I do on TV because I have to be that much more descriptive of the action to my audience. And I put a little bit more energy into it. And I was really uh, gassed out. I had no energy left in the tank when that counterattack after the Algeria corner kick came, which happened to be very close for them to score and and win the game. And as the play progresses, uh, I'm just giving it uh, all out because I knew that was the last play of the game. Se lo perdió Raifi, y ahora de contragolpe Donovan, se le va larga Donovan, la quiere por derecha Altidor, al área viene, y le cita por arquero, Donovan gol! I don't know. It's one of the things that uh, you know very well, broadcasters, uh, unless you have catchphrases or or certain things that you can uh, have prepared before your broadcast, this is 
all spontaneous. And uh, Landon scored the goal, and it was just uh, uh, not only was it a phenomenal goal itself, but what it meant, like you said, for U.S. soccer to go through to the next round. So I gave it my best and my all. And um, incredibly enough, um, you know, this was on radio, and it's still recognized as one of the best goals of my 30-plus year career. And you almost passed out, I've heard you say, after about the third uh, time that you uh, did the extended goal call. There was no more air <laughs> in the brain it, or the it, lungs. It, um, I really have that memory of uh, it, it. It doesn't happen very often because obviously you're in control of, of your emotion or you try to be in control of your emotions. Uh, when you mix emotions and, and soccer play-by-play, in my case, the way I feel for the game and the way I feel for the teams I quote-unquote root for, even though I'm not supposed to root for anybody, uh, I, will, I always say that I would be a hypocrite if I don't want the U.S. If I say that I don't want the U.S. to do well and Argentina to do well in the World Cups, so it meant so much. Uh, I, I have the, the memory of just like, ooh, you know, I was like, I don't know if I was gone for two seconds or not uh, in between breaths. Um, but it was um, uh, definitely, it was the most, uh, it was the goal that exhausted me the most in my career for sure. I was sitting with Alexi Lalas, our, our, our mutual colleague. You were with him at NBC. We were prepared to deliver a very grim post-match report. It would have been disastrous for the U.S. not to go through to the knockout round. It was going to happen. We were preparing the last rights for this team, probably the coach and that group of players together, and then everything changes in, in a few seconds. And Alexi's in tears as a former U.S. captain. He gets very emotionally involved. I love that about him. I was choked up. It was all we could do to deliver the post-game report to a very excited group of American soccer fans who felt like they had escaped death, literally. I mean, it was that, it was that grim, and then it was that euphoric. And I know you felt that way afterwards, too. As cold as it is, as exhausted as you are, that's why we do what we do, is to be able to capture that kind of a moment. Exactly. I mean, those are the... The, the one moment in, in sports history that all of us, starting with the players, athletes, coaches, etc., will remember. And I always say, Chris, that we are uh, blessed, or in my case, I am blessed to be part of history. I have the best seat in the house, um, and all I have to do is sit there and translate my emotions into my audience. Uh, and obviously, um, I had a 30-minute post-game show on radio after the match, and when I saw that the players were out um, towards that far corner opposite my booth, uh, singing and celebrating with the American fans, uh, with you know, after all, you know, we were in South Africa. It is the other you know side of the world. It was very far away from home, and there were—I don't know—help me if you can—but I believe there were at least five thousand. U.S. American fans with flags, with, you know, everyone wearing the uh, national team jersey be, uh, underneath their, their winter clothing, some of them on top of them. Um, and, and I choked up. I really choked up. And I don't know if I held uh, my cry or I did cry a little bit. I, I definitely, if, if I listen back to the post game, I am sure I choked up. Uh, several times during that period because that was the one of the most emotional moments uh, of of uh, you know U.S. soccer history. Goals in soccer can happen lots of different ways. They can happen suddenly, where you can't see it coming. They can happen off a set piece. They can happen in open play. The way this goal that we're talking about happened, where Tim Howard makes a beautiful outlet, and you sit there. You said the best seat in the house. Very high vantage point. We're able to see the flow, the spacing in a way differently than TV cameras can see it. So it's our responsibility to help convey what we see that maybe the, the TV audience isn't yet aware of. Your call was beautiful, leading up, of course, to the, the, the famous goal call was the rhythm of it. You anticipated what would happen. I compare a play like that to a, a kickoff return in American football where the ball settles in and you from a high vantage point can see the blocks 
can see the space, you're aware of the returner's speed and what could happen. And that's so much fun to be able to anticipate something that then comes to happen. You did that beautifully because that, that's part of it, especially on radio where people are not seeing what's going on. And, and the art of it to build the excitement so that the goal call has even more impact at the end. You, you've had years of experience doing that, but still when it's executed like that, it's, it's a thing of beauty. Yeah, it's the perfect combination. First of all, uh, it's, it makes a whole lot of difference being on site than calling the games off tube, uh, usually during the year. Let's say I call an average of 200 uh, games, uh, probably 180 are done uh, from the TV studio. So all I get is whatever everyone else gets at home. I don't have another vantage point like I did in, in this particular play. Um, I just don't want to brag about what I did. I, I hate talking in, in the first person, but I, I do. I, I am amazed that I have the clarity of mind to choose my words and build up to the play because, uh, as I said, I was totally exhausted. Um, I wanted the play to finish in a U.S. goal. And... Um, it's, it's very hard also to pick the right words because if you go one word too long, the play will beat you. So if I'm saying something else and the ball gets crossed while I'm in the middle of a sentence, uh, I, as a broadcaster, I'm in big, big trouble. So you have to choose your words, your pace at the right time, not to you know, stumble on, on your play-by-play, -play, on yourself. So I was very lucky that I had the clarity of mind. Um, and I'm going to tell you something that happened a lot right after that World Cup. Um, you know, besides all the accolades I had in, in my career, which I am blessed and grateful for, the most gratifying thing happened after coming back from South Africa. People telling me I stopped the car to listen to that call. I listened, I mean, that call, you made us cry. Um, when I came back from that World Cup, when the customs agent told me, I listened to your broadcast on radio, when we all know that World Cups are made for TV events, even though not everyone can watch. But as soon as I set foot back in our country, in, in Miami, and the customs agent said, I listened to your call on radio. That was the Landon Donovan goal was awesome. I said, whoa, I think it probably was a, a good call. That's an understatement. How does it make you feel, Andres, when people say years later we listen back and something you've said on television or radio gives me chills, still makes me emotional? That, that particular goal is one that U.S. soccer fans will return to when they don't feel so good about the state of the national team. When they need a, a pep talk, they'll, they'll look back at goals like that and, and, and a short list of others, and they still get the same emotional reactions because, of course, what happened, the play is the main thing, but the soundtrack that you're laying on top of it is also a big part of the emotions that they feel and emotions that last forever. You've, you've been told that, I'm sure, about all kinds of goals from all kinds of national teams and leagues you covered. Does that ever get old or is it, is it still a thrill to hear that? No, it's, it's a thrill because it, may, it makes you feel good about the job that you're doing, that you're conveying what you're trying. That it it uh, legitimizes what I try to convey on my broadcast, either on radio or on television. That uh, First of all, I, you know, my goal is to have the people that watch or that listen to my broadcast being entertained, uh, informed. And uh, also, I, I want them on the edge of their seats from minute one to minute 90. And that is a testament that, you know, when people recognize uh, so many years removed from, from that day, the emotions of that goal call, uh, this happened uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I found out that I was Landon's Donovan's birthday because I go and, uh, you know, I wake up in the morning and my Twitter uh, feed is full of uh, wish, uh, people wishing Landon happy birthday replaying my goal call. Uh, somebody <laughs> had the uh, very 
a good idea of mounting my audio play-by-play -play because I was calling from my radio company, Football de Primera, with video. They matched it exactly. So there I had, uh, you know, the uh, on, on my feed, all, all the, the, goal, the goal calls from all the angles uh, with my play-by-play -play on it. So it's, it's, it's definitely very nice when, when people recognize that, you know, I made them feel something other than just you know, telling them something they did not know tactically. I've heard you talk about another goal involving a U.S. national player. On the women's side, Carly Lloyd against Japan, um, a very memorable game for U.S. soccer fans because it was a tense buildup to the game, and then the U.S. just dominated from the start. But to complete Carly Lloyd's hat trick, I think it was only the 16th minute of the game. It was already 4 nothing. but her third goal was an unbelievable strike from the stripe of midfield, over the head of the Japanese keeper who stumbles backward, gets her fingertips on the ball, it caroms off the goalpost and goes in. I've watched that, that replay many, many times. Your call, that's a goal no one could expect. Your analyst is in the middle of doing something because Japan has the ball in, in the U.S. end, and all of a sudden, you need to take it back because she's launched from midfield in a very unlikely goal, and that was a memorable moment too, even though it wasn't a... Uh, maybe tension in the game because the score was already 3-0, just the feet of a goal from, from midfield in a World Cup final. tell you uh, two, three different stories about that goal because there's a story behind every important goal, I guess. And people just, you know, stay, uh, are watching at home and think, okay, this guy's just yelling goal. Well, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. Uh, one, you just said it, the, the uh, advantage point that you have being on the pitch. If I would have been on the, uh, calling the game off too, uh, my color commentator would have gone on to say and finish whatever he was saying, because I could have not anticipated that Carly was going to hit the ball from midfield because I, I saw the goalkeeper uh, way off her line. So as soon as Carly got the ball and did this, and for, your, for this podcast audience, I'm raising my head up to the air. She's, uh, in one second, she had the 360 uh, view of where she was, where the ball was, where the Japanese goalkeeper was and where the goal was, and she hit it. So if I would have been uh, in the studio, there's not a chance that I would have called the goal the way I called it. Uh, that is one part of the story. The second part of the story is uh, the night before, I was in Santiago, Chile, calling for my radio company, the final of the World Cup that went into extra time and penalties. Uh, I had two and a half hours to get from the stadium to the airport to catch a flight uh, from Santiago to Dallas and then onwards to Vancouver. Uh, when the game went into extra time, I said, what is it am I going to do here? I mean, I got to be in Vancouver the next morning. Um, I called the, you know, the obviously the extra time, I called the penalties. As soon as Alexis Sanchez hit the last penalty for Chile, I took off my headsets, rushed <laughs> to the airport. I was lucky. Uh, I was sad that Argentina had lost. Um, and uh, I was happy that Chile had won because everyone stayed inside the stadium and there was no traffic to get out. If Chile would have lost, no one would have stayed for the ceremony and I would have been stuck and I would have been fired from Telemundo. As easy as that. So anyways, I get to Vancouver uh, pretty much with 
you know, the, the sleep that you can catch on an airplane. I get inside the stadium and the first person I see is Grant Wall, uh, who we all know. And he says, what are you doing here? I saw you yesterday in, in Chile. Yeah, well, that was yesterday. Uh, so anyways, just to go back to the goal itself, as soon as I saw Carly hit the, I mean, get the ball, uh, I knew she had a chance because I, I was I, I was obviously very aware of where the Japanese goalkeeper was. And I, uh, as I always say, regardless, I was, you know, probably the game clincher 16 minutes into the final. Regardless of that, scoring, a, first of all, scoring a hat-trick in a World Cup final and scoring a goal from midfield has to be uh, one of the greatest goals in soccer history, regardless of gender, period. I have no doubts in my mind. Uh, that was an extraordinary goal by Carly, uh, an extraordinary game by Carly, having scored three. So that's the story of, of that goal. Well, you, you summed up the challenge and the thrill of doing this. You have to describe what you see in the moment, using the words perfectly, but then you have to frame it right away. And you did, I think, say one of the greatest goals you've ever seen. You, you had the perspective in the moment, which is part of the job, to frame it instantly. And since it's not just the long goal, I think it was 38 seconds or something like that, that you said goal after that one, and it, it was justified. But then to come back and frame it perfectly afterwards. I, I've taken a lot from watching people like yourself and the, the legends of calling soccer and trying to use some of those techniques in calling American football, where it's easy to shout touchdown, but then you have to hopefully come up with the line right after that that frames what that six points means. Does it clinch the game? Does it announce that they're not dead, that they're coming back? You hopefully have something come to mind to punctuate after the goal, and you did that in that case beautifully. I want to get to some other calls eventually in other games, but let's go way back to the beginning. You grew up in Argentina. Obviously, soccer is a religion. I know you you played soccer as a kid everywhere you could, every possible location, every free minute. You weren't going to be the next Maradona, but you had clearly a, a passion for the game as a kid and, and pretty early on figured out that doing something with my life that's associated with football would be, would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, as I grew up in Argentina, every kid played uh, football, soccer. Uh, even though there were other sports around, they weren't as popular as they are now. So everyone played um, soccer in the streets, in our social clubs. There was no uh, FIFA games. There were no electronic games. I mean, I, I will tell you how old I am by saying that we were all amazed when somebody got the, remember the Atari tennis thing that <laughs> bumped around. That was well, like... Pong, the, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was a craze way back in my days. Uh, anyway, so, uh, you know, when I moved to the U.S., I played in high school. Um, then I went to USC and played there. USC wasn't wasn't uh, affiliated to the NCAA in their soccer program back in, in my days. So it was all club uh, games. And I always lie and say that my career ended there because MLS didn't exist, so I had nowhere to go, which is not true. Uh, because I wouldn't have made it anyways. But uh, I always <laughs> knew that I wanted to be around the game for sure. And I'm doing the next best thing to playing, which is broadcasting the games that I love so much. So growing up in Argentina, there's a legendary Argentine broadcaster, Jose Maria Munoz, who broadcast the World Cups. He was the voice on top of Maradona's goals in Mexico, the, the hand of God, and then the brilliant goal after that where he weaved through the entire England team and scored. And, and so you, you get to listen to a, a legend, and, and people think you invented the long goal, extended call. That, that, that's, you're very quick to point out that you may have popularized it or perfected it, but you didn't invent it. That, that was the style of the broadcasters in, in Latin America, no? Uh, throughout Latin America, not only Jose Maria Munoz. Um, the audience has to understand that Jose Maria Munoz was a radio figure. He was larger than life. Uh, he had a, the very first pan-regional uh, soccer show that was heard throughout Latin America from Colombia all the way down to, to Argentina. And he pretty much was the only uh, play-by-play announcer 
uh, of the time. There were others be before him, and now you know if you go on a weekend in Argentina or you know you you do tuning, there are ten radio stations broadcasting the same game. Before it was only him, so we all listened to him or him and, and a couple of others. But we he had eighty percent of the share of the audience. So we all grew up listening to him, whether we liked him or not. So obviously it was an era where uh, people would go to the stadium with their, the old transistor radio glued to their ears before headphones and before everything else. So we went to the stadiums listening to his play-by-play. And obviously there was no delay on radio. So, you know, it was very, very uh, instructive in the way that you, you watched the game as a fan, but you were also listening to his commentary, commentators, his commentary, his play-by-play. So that is uh, how I grew up uh, watching and listening to soccer. So you come to the United States, you take an English classes I read in Argentina, but that doesn't necessarily prepare you for having to speak colloquial English in America. And you said like a lot of immigrant kids, your teenage is a tough year to, to to relocate to another country. I moved around to different schools during that time. I know how tough that was. And that was within the United States, changing cultures and languages. You, you, you've said it wasn't easy for you making that transition to America. It was extremely hard. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I got my break working for Univision in February of 1987. And I was uh, having one of those uh, crises of wanting to go back home because I, I mean, even though I was uh, older than I was when I, when I got here, um, it was uh, 10 years later after I got here, um, I, I was still missing Argentina and wanted to invo- be involved in soccer and found that, you know, I had to go back to Argentina to do so. Uh, but when I, my family moved here, uh, as you said, I thought I did speak English. The English that was uh, taught in uh, my school in Argentina was British English. So uh, I referred to, you know, everyone wearing trousers and not pants and, <laughs> and, and you name it. Uh, but really, I, I didn't speak a word. I mean, it was, I, I thought I knew, I mean, I had very good grades in my English classes, but could not speak a word. So it took me a while, um, obviously to this day, even though I was uh, 16 on to 17 when I moved, uh, even to this day, I have a heavy accent. My brother, which is uh, four years younger than I am, uh, and obviously moved with us. I mean, you couldn't tell for one second that he's not American. He speaks with no accent at all. So it was very, very tough, very tough because it was a different uh, language. It was a different culture altogether. And uh, obviously, I was a big, big soccer fan already. And there was no soccer in this country at the time. So it was uh, tremendously hard being a teenager in those days uh, in my new home. It's impressive to get into USC. You wanted to be a, a print journalist, so you're learning to write in, in your second language. And then just out of USC, you mentioned the, the precursor to Univision, the, the Spanish International Network. You get an audition. Now, you've never called soccer matches, but that's the assignment. You go in there and, and tell that story, because I don't know of anyone else that goes in for a broadcast audition completely inexperienced, and they tell them, guess what? It's more than an audition. This is going to actually be on television your very first time. I mean, that's... That's pretty scary, and yet you, you somehow pulled it off, Andres, and got the job. Well, yeah, I was uh, while I was in school at USC, I was already working as a correspondent for a big publishing company in Argentina that published five different magazines, one of which was like Sports Illustrated. So I covered lots of boxing, the few uh, friendly matches that were played. Actually, there weren't few. There were quite many back in the day in Los Angeles, so I coincided with lots of, uh, you know, Hispanic press. One day I get a call and they tell me they want to audition me for a job at Univision. And all they tell me is bring two coats, two shirts and two ties and see you, you know, (laughs) at the studio. Okay, fine. So I get there and I ask the guy who eventually ended up being my boss, uh, so what's the audition about? 
says, oh, we're going to record two games. One of them will air Sunday. The other one will air the next, the following Sunday. <laughs> and I want you to call a commentary the uh, first match. Okay, that shouldn't be that much of a problem. I was amazed by, you know, I was looking around inside the studio, how big it was, the camera, the lighting. Uh, I had never been inside a TV studio in my life. I do call commentary. We break for lunch. Um, in the middle of, of lunch, he tells me, you know, I can tell you know a lot about soccer, but, and, you know, I filled up the rest of the sentence after the coma. I imagine it was a but, you know, you're not good enough. But the but, comma, was, do you think you can do play-by-play on the next game that we're going to record because uh, we are really looking for a play-by-play announcer? I was 23 at the time. I mean, sure. I had nothing to lose. And I said, why not? I have, uh, this goes back to my formative years of going to the stadium with the transistor radio glued to my ear. So every single match that I watched in person, I listened to to play-by-play on radio. The matches that I did not see in person, I listened to play-by-play. So I said, sure, why not? I did it. I guess uh, Jorge Berry, who I'm extremely always grateful and I, I name him in, in every single interview, hired me within a week, full time. And I guess the rest is, is history. From, That's from a that beautiful game story. To, you're sitting there and all the games you've listened to over the years, the rhythms that accumulate in your mind, they become part of your blood. When called on unexpectedly to have to do it, it, it all comes back. And, and that's, that's a very cool thing. I, I've heard you tell the story that the boss, although he was impressed, maybe after lunch, he was a little tired. And, and the, one of the goal calls you gave actually well, woke actually, his ass he was, up. Uh, <laughs> he, was, he wasn't dozing off, but, uh, you know, he just, I guess, was listening. Uh, let me put it more elegantly. He was with his eyes closed, listening to my rhythm and my play-by-play, ah. which... I, I haven't, obviously, I didn't have a voice then. I mean, a, a broadcasting voice. I don't know what, I, I cannot remember what he liked about that play-by-play because obviously it was the very first time I did play-by-play. Sure. But when the, the goal was scored, he, he kind of like paid attention and uh, I guess he liked it. <laughs> I don't know how in the world you do this, but I think beginning in 1990, and certainly in 1994, when the World Cup was in America, calling every single World Cup match. The, the, the mental, physical, and vocal stamina that it takes to do that, to bring energy to each game because fans of those countries, that's an enormous thing for them. So you cannot treat it like it's one of 52 games. You have to bring it every time. It's two, two games a day in the group stage, and then over a three-week period of time. It's exhausting. How in the hell did you do that? Uh, honestly, I do not know. I mean, reflecting back and looking back, it's like something uh, I I am not sure I could do today. I'm going to try to do something similar now in Qatar because the geography allows it for me to go maybe two or even three games in one day. But uh, way back in the day, it's um, I had no choice, really. Uh, Univision only had one play-by-play announcer, and they counted on me to call every single game we broadcasted in 1990, 94, and 98. Uh, I was the happiest man on earth. Um, but like you, you said, you have to add that that way back in the day we had no internet, so my preparation for the game took so much longer, uh, so much time. Um, it would have been a piece of cake today, you know, just going on the web and searching. Uh, life stories about the players, uh, pronunciations. Now, you know, to find the right pronunciation of the player, all you have to do is just YouTube it and you'll find either the play, player saying his name outright or, or, you know, some app that gives you the right pronunciation. Back in the day, I had to call the embassies and say, you know, hey, how do you pronounce, you know, this these names from your Saudi Arabia team? Um, Wait so a minute, was, you, you, you called every embassy and asked someone on the other end of the phone line to pronounce the roster for you? Yes, yes, wow. for 1994 I did. I called the Bulgaria. I mean, not every single embassy, the ones that I had no idea how to pronounce it, to try to get the, 
right uh, pronunciation because, uh, as you said, every game was very important, whether they be from any Latin American countries, which was pretty much our audience. But then, you know, our audience grew to be uh, non-Spanish speakers that uh, enjoy the way we were calling the games. So I had, uh, I called all the embassies in, in LA or in Washington where then they helped me out. Then if I ended up pronouncing it correctly, it's very hard when you have Greece playing uh, Bulgaria and you're doing play-by-play in Spanish. You know, it's, it, most likely I probably missed a couple of pronunciations, but yeah, that was the, 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 the research that I had done. Uh, you know, with clips from newspapers, I went to all the newsstands in LA that had um, that had uh, newspapers in, in 1990, four newspapers, I mean, um, and that's the way, you know, I did research. So on top of that, I had to call every single game and prepare every single, I mean, preparing one game is time consuming enough. I had to prepare two or three games beforehand for my day's work. Um, and on top of that, you know, the, uh, the emotions that go into the games and the exhaustion, the, the, you know, just the, the mental and, and physical toll it takes on you is, it was, uh, I don't know if I could have done it at this age. So I probably, let's attribute it to age, uh, and, and the strength of my vocal cords way back in the day to, to having pulled off the task. Yeah, you have to train like an athlete. You have to warm up and cool down like an athlete because it's a very physical experience on the voice, not to mention um, you know, the mind and body to get that done. That, that's, that's just remarkable. I can't believe you're actually going gonna to go to, to Qatar in the next World Cup and, and try to do something like that in, in those desert conditions you know, where it's going to be you know, cool at night. Good luck with that. I'll, I'll be listening. Yeah. I wish you well. well. <laughs> I... Um... Uh, we're going to shoot for at least two games a, a day. Uh, awesome. Now, when, you know, whenever the draw comes out, uh, we will see and we will figure something out. You talked about certain games standing out. I'm thinking of a, of a World Cup game in a, in a fairly recent World Cup in, in 2018. Your home country of Argentina is struggling a bit. Um, you know, Maradona's in, in the building keeping an eye. Everybody's criticizing the team. They're playing Nigeria. It's 1-1. I believe Argentina needs to win that game to go through, right? It's, it's, yep. uh, and, and, and Marcos Rojo scores a goal late in the game, which is always exciting when that happens because you suspect that not only has the goal been scored, but the game has been decided on that play. And that's a very memorable reaction. I could hear, I could hear the, the emotion after the, after the long goal call. It looked like you were struggling to keep it together there, Andres, and I don't blame you for that. No, it was the Landon Donovan goal eight years uh, after. <laughs> uh, with a caveat, this was even much more embarrassing because it's Argentina, two-time world champion, being knocked out in the uh, group stages with one player called Leo Messi uh, wearing the captain captain's armband. Uh, that would have been the biggest embarrassment. Not that it wasn't getting knocked off by France in the next round, but at least we made it through the group phase and we were minutes away from the biggest embarrassment in, in modern Argentinian history. So, uh, yeah, I was, uh, it was, um, a feeling very much like Landon's goal, uh, but like a little bit more because it had more of a, of a personal, even though I'm, you know, a dual citizen, um, Argentina for me in soccer is, I mean, Boca Juniors. And when I, when, whenever Argentina and Boca Junior plays, uh, I have a lot of emotion uh, within me. And I was like, I can't believe this is happening. And then I have to think about my audience and what do they care? They're just watching the game. I have to be as professional as I could be. And when Rojo scored, I didn't, I'm going to tell you all right. I didn't know who the heck scored. I had to wait. <laughs> uh, the goal call was go, 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 because the, um, the, the TV cameras were on the player's celebration and the replay didn't come up on the screen. So I was just waiting for the replay. You're just to come stalling up. until you see a replay to see that it was, I was put it in the net. I'm not going to lie. I was stalling. <laughs> I, I, looked at, 
uh, my color commentator, who happened to be a former Argentinian national team captain, and, and asking him in that very Italian-Argentine gesture with my hands, who was it? And he pointed to a wrong player. Uh, nobody knew because, you know, he came, it was across from almost the right uh, corner kick flag to way to the far post. Rojo was playing left fullback, and I don't know where in the heck, he, how he appeared inside the box and, and just hit it. Uh, so until I saw who, who it was, uh, I didn't say the name of the player. Not, not that it mattered at that time, not, not for Argentines. Anyways, you know, we scored. Uh, whoever scored was good enough. But I stalled until I saw his, uh, the, the replay of him scoring the goal because actually I was... This was, I believe, St. Petersburg. This was, I was very, very high up talking about the best seat in the house. That necessarily was not the best seat in the house. I was probably in one of the few last rows of, of the stadium. So my vantage point, even though it was panoramic, when the ball was crossed with 22 players inside the box or 21 sure. players inside the box and with the emotion going, uh, yeah, I, I have no regrets of saying I stole until I saw who the heck it was that hit. We've all done that. We've all done that. Yeah, you talked about the emotion and the passion of, of soccer in Argentina. I, I've been in Buenos Aires for the Super Classico, the, the Boca Juniors and their arch rivals River Plate at the, the Bombonera in, in Sanity. Um, advised not to go there, but to see you know the fans climbing this 20-foot chain link fence with the famous you know flares in their hands burning it. There's really nothing like that. I mean. English soccer fans say, wait a minute, we are just as passionate as any Latin American soccer fans. They might say the same thing in Italy or Germany. What differentiates the Latin football fan from English-speaking or European soccer fans or Americans? Um, I think we take it to a next level. I think it's part of a cultural phenomenon where when you have a Super Clásico, a Boca River, uh, there's nobody talks about anything else that is happening around them other than that game. Uh, it's insane. It's just like, you know, we have so we, we live so passionately about soccer and obviously the rivalries, not only of Boca River, but all the other teams that have rivalry, rivalries within themselves that uh, I don't know what it is. And unfortunately, it has gotten out of hand lately with, you know, violence now. Away fans can't attend the games, the big games, like uh, which is it's kind of sad. It's it's twofold. One, it's it's better for the home team because they get to sell more tickets to their fans. But then, you know, the ambiance is not is not the same. Um, so I don't know what it is. It's just uh, I think it's just a cultural phenomenon. That, it is a shame that we, that's part of soccer lore, though, Andres. Is the the loyal visiting supporters following their team into enemy territory and setting yeah. up their little camp in the corner of the stadium, whether that's in England or, or, or South America or anywhere. And in, in Mexico, it's become a problem. There's obviously there's been violence in, in recent games there in a big way that's, that's marred things. And um, we hope that doesn't continue because there's something is lost when you don't have that, that uh, totally. two fans in the stadium. Totally agree. Totally agree. But, uh, you know, we, we make soccer our religion and, um, Unfortunately, not only in Argentina, but Mexico and many other parts of the world, the most unruly fans are fans of the teams, but they, unfortunately, they are conduct, conducting other businesses inside the stadium. They're, you know, they, they're, they, they're control freaks of many other aspects of everything that is going on in the stands, which uh, not necessarily is good. Many people listening are fans of the Premier League. You've called, I believe, is it it's nine or ten seasons of, of Premier League now on Telemundo. So you're calling them from the great venues in, in the sport in England, Old Trafford and um, Stamford Bridge. I'm a, I'm a Chelsea supporter. Etihad, Wembley, from long distance, I would imagine, most of the time. For the, the predominant uh, pattern has been over those ten years, calling them from a long distance away. What, what is it about the Premier League that that, uh, in your view, sets it apart? Or you have the, do you also develop a passion for that? Um, no, I think it's one of the most watchable leagues in the world. Uh, they have done everything 
so good to engage the audience. First of all, uh, there are good teams, there are mediocre teams, and there are bad teams. But all of them play with a pace and an intensity from minute one to minute 90 that is really, really awesome. Uh, so maybe you don't have uh, the tactical wizardry of uh, Pep Guardiola on Watford, but you know it's nonstop action when Watford plays. Uh, you sit on the TV and there's no time wasting. There's respect for the referee. The pitches are in immaculate conditions, which obviously makes it uh, better for for the good players and, and even the bad players. So I think the Premier League uh, has done a terrific job, first of all, of making the players understand that this is a worldwide product, that there is a respect for the referees. This isn't seen any other league in the world. Um, even though they might not like a call, you don't have a player or five players surrounding the referee wasting the restart of the game for five minutes. You don't have players faking injuries. You don't have players uh, trying to lure the referee into calling things that did not happen. So you have nonstop action from minute one until the end of the until the, the final whistle. And that is uh, that makes for a very good TV product. And then on top of that, you have you know the best players in the world or most of the best players in the world playing in the top teams. Uh, that's the perfect combination. I mean, Liverpool is a joy to watch. City is a joy to watch. Chelsea is a joy to watch. Uh, you know, from time to time, Manchester United, Tottenham, uh, they're very good, very solid. So I think the Premier League has to be commended. And obviously what the world pays in TV rights fees uh, talks for itself. Uh, it's probably the best sellable product uh, for a worldwide television audience, regardless whether you're a fan of a team or not. If you put two games uh, at the same time, you don't even know which are the teams. Just put you know white jerseys and black jerseys on both uh, games and put people in front of the TV. Uh, you will get glued on the Premier League action against any other league. Your son, Nico, second-generation soccer commentator, both English and Spanish. I think he's still with Univision, which is the competition of Telemundo. I, I, he's done no, some work. he's, uh, he's with CBS. Uh, oh, he's, he's with Paramount Plus. So he left he, Univision. He's, with, he's doing uh, English on, on CBS. Okay. Yes, he hosts um, uh, every uh, Champions League fixture. He has the Golasso show on Paramount Plus uh, from London. So he gets to fly to London every time there's a uh, competition. And he's uh, one of the main hosts. He's, he started being the, the host uh, by himself. And now they have like three or four other people that are with him. So he's uh, uh, very happy at, uh, at Paramount, having, having gone through school at Univision, which he was uh, very grateful of. So you listen to his broadcasts. You listen as an experienced legend in the business. You listen as a father. And uh, how are those how are those critiques, Andres? Are they are they brutally honest? Are they delivered lovingly? What's the style? <laughs> both, both. Um, <laughs> I can't hide the fact that I mean, if he says something that I think is out of whack, I mean, we live in a in a world today where you have to be extremely careful on anything that you say, you write on social media, etc. And he's on a national TV platform. Uh, he has his own voice, obviously. Uh, I will not tell him, I will never tell him what to say. Uh, he's a very well-prepared young man. I mean, young man being 28, uh, you know, he, he even though he's 28, he's still my, you know, my son to me. So I, you know, sometimes he asks for uh, my opinion and I will give it to him. And some other times when I think he could have done better, um, I tell him so. And actually it works both ways around, both ways, uh, because sometimes he, he would tell me, why did you say that? And I say, you're right. You know, I don't know why I say it. <laughs> well, that, that shows he's feeling more confident if he's going to dare to critique what, what you're doing. You know, you, you sit and reflect 
this sport that you have been around your whole life. You, you have a dream job. You have had an enormous influence on the sport, both for English-speaking and Spanish-speaking people, of course, in the growth of the game here, your, your adopted country. You're in the Hall of Fame. You've been in movies and The Simpsons and Letterman and commercials. And it's about much more than, than one word said in an extended way, but, but that has been a part of it. And are you, do, you, do you accept that? Do you enjoy that now that we've, we've reached a, kind of a wise old age that you're about much more than one word, but that one word has been important with the way you say it? Well, I'm going to throw a comparison which everyone will know. It's Al Michaels, just do you believe in miracles? No. He's one of the most prepared broadcasters for any sport that he does in this business. We all looked up to him for so many years. Uh, I still enjoy listening to him and to good, to all the good uh, American broadcasters. Yes, uh, I have gained fame, fame by uh, my goal goals, but I do appreciate the fact, uh, like I said, you know, about the customs agent that said, I listen to your call and I appreciate when uh, people say that, you know, I, I know a lot about the game. I'm not your regular typical play-by-play -play announcer that just calls on players' names. I have my own opinion uh, of how the game is being played and lots of uh, people in my audience recognize that. Um, so, yes, uh, I've, I... You know, I get it. I became, you know, famous and and all of these things happened because of the notoriety that my work received because of my goal call. But beyond that goal call, there's also um, an understanding from the audience and from the soccer world that I'm not just, you know, a guy with a gimmick, that it, there's a guy uh, behind the microphone that knows the game. That's a mic drop. That, that's, a, that's a beautiful way to end it. <laughs> I am just so grateful to Andres for sharing his time and his great stories. We recorded this just before the U.S. men's national team officially qualified for the World Cup this winter in Qatar. But I'll tell you, Andres has an optimistic outlook for the young American team. He thinks he'll handle World Cup pressure just fine after navigating the tough qualifying in the CONCACAF Federation. And he's very positive on the future of the U.S. program when we co-host the World Cup with Mexico and Canada in 2026. Cannot wait for that. As always, thankful to my co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster, and to Jason Weichel for his editing skills, and to you for listening and offering feedback. We'll leave you with one Andres Encore to get you fired up. <laughs>